0: I welcome you to follow in your Bible today or use the Pew Bible to turn to John chapter 16. We've been studying these chapters carefully, last time ending with Jesus telling his disciples that they would face the same hostility and persecution, hatred without any apparent reason as he faced. He warned them of this as he was about to depart from them. And I pick up right at at that, right at the end of that warning in John 16, verse 4, and read now through verse 15. Jesus, Jesus Christ is the one speaking to his disciples. I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. To you. This is God's holy word. One day last week, my wife and I had a very enjoyable time having a meal with another pastor and his wife. These are people, I'm not going to tell you who it was, but you would know if I did. People in a my age bracket with whom we have shared experiences and shared many common friendships and common things in our denomination over decades of ministry. And our conversation between the four of us flowed very enjoyably for two hours. I don't know where two hours went to. And I would suppose, honestly, as we had stories to tell and memories to unpack and common friends to speak of, we could have easily talked another two hours— but the waitress actually was eyeing me about getting the check paid and vacating the table. So the four of us did leave, but knowing that we would have had many more things which might have been said to one another. Well, if you look ahead to the very end of John's gospel, chapter twenty-one, twenty-five. I didn't read it today, but the very last words of this whole gospel are written this way, John says there are many, also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them was to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. And our text today is very much centered on the theme, the idea of God having continual truth to make known to us, to reveal to us more than we could ever learn from any one brief encounter. We're continuing to study this farewell discourse, as it's called, of Jesus, beginning as it did at verse 1 of chapter 14. I hope if you've paid attention and been here along the way, you've seen that these several chapters, it's impressed me in a new way how there's there's one flow of thinking going on in these chapters. It's not simply a lot of random teachings of Jesus. They all come out of the stem of the idea of Jesus leaving them and him trying to prepare the 11 disciples for that departure. If I would try to paraphrase everything he said up to this point, it's almost a ridiculous assignment, but I'll do it this way. Jesus would say, I'm leaving you now and it's for an important purpose and it will have a grand outworking for your good in the end. We will be together again, but meanwhile, while you miss me physically, know that my very life and breath are in you. I'm living in you and dwelling in you by the Holy Spirit whom I will send. You can't grasp this right now, but I actually will be able to do more for you through my Spirit than I could by remaining physically with you. Today we're hearing Jesus teach more, as he did already in this section previous, about the Holy Spirit. And in verse 7, he says, if I do not go away, the helper or comforter will not come. And he's actually saying, it's better if he comes. Now, it's very hard for them to believe that or understand that, but in time they would see it, that the one he was sending in his place wasn't some dismal, unqualified, second-rate, substitute teacher who didn't know the score. He really was someone who could do for them all the things that Jesus did for them in his flesh. So his departure would not be a woeful loss, but a wonderful gain. And it really is better for us disciples today that Christ left the earth and now rules at God's right hand and ministers to us through the Holy Spirit. We're not dealing with the idea that Jesus was once present and now is absent, as many people would think. We're dealing instead with the idea that Jesus was present in one locale of history, and he now is present potentially in all places and in all persons who believe in him and are his disciples. So our passage here presents more teaching about the activity of the Holy Spirit, one of these direct passages where Jesus himself spoke about what the Spirit would do. And I see just two main points to this fairly short text, but there'll be subpoints of each one of those. The, the first main point would be this, the Holy Spirit convicts the world. And the second main point will be that the Spirit always has more of Christ to show to his church. The first point I would see in verses 8 to 11 says the Holy Spirit convicts the world. Jesus said when the Spirit comes, as he will, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, sometimes we use the word to convict in a criminal court sense. Someone is accused of a felony and found guilty and they're convicted, conclusively decided that they're guilty. That meaning could bear upon what is said here, but it's more an idea here of coming to understand, bringing a person to a point where a light of knowledge about themselves dawns and they are become aware of some critical failing that has to be addressed. And we read here that the Spirit will convict the world of sin because humanity in general doesn't know what sin is. People say, well, yes, I do. Sin is like when you break one of the Ten Commandments and they start listing off things that they would say are sins, plural. But Jesus is saying what we need to be convicted about or made aware of is sin as a condition of our life, a weakness, a failure to be able to please God, and a continuing state of that we are in from birth in which we rebel against God and displease Him. And quite shockingly, many, many people would say, well, I'm not in a situation of sin. I'm basically a good person. I love God. Well, that person, if they don't already see it, has to be convicted about the condition of sin because the Bible says they are in that condition whether they know it or not. Romans 3 says all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one. And yet it's a basic credo for many people. Well, humanity is basically good. And I'm basically good. At least I'm better than many people. And they rest in that. Well, the thing the Holy Spirit has to do and will do in many cases is to convict people of simple guilt when they do wrong. Now, I'm calling out as what may seem like a fairly trivial example here, something about my wife, which I didn't ask her if I could use, so I could be in big trouble today. But this is a story my wife has told me, and I know it had a real impact on her. When she was about 12 or 13 years old, she probably already knows what's coming, uh, she and her family moved to a neighborhood into a brand new home that had just been built. And And it was one of the early homes, so there were others being built. It was like a big construction site all around their house. And uh, you have to imagine 12- or 13-year-old Carol out with her younger sister and younger brother. And I don't know, they were climbing in the holes and going in and out of the houses with no doors and all of this. And for some reason, my almost criminal wife (laughs) threw a stone. I don't even know if her sister or brother saw her throw the stone, but nobody else did, and I also know from the story that the stone broke a window in a house under construction. Well, my wife, not my wife then, of course, but Carol went home, and that night she was going to bed, and I guess mom was going to turn out the light or say goodnight or something, and here was Carol sitting in her bed sobbing. Why was she sobbing? because she was convicted and ashamed of her guilt. She had broken a window. And I think you may know that the thing was made right with the builder, I guess. But uh, here was what the world would simply call an act of her conscience at work. We would say, no, it isn't just simply conscience. It was the Holy Spirit. Here was a tender-hearted young girl who knew she had done wrong, and she was very aware of that. The Holy Spirit was making her aware. Well, you might say that's a pretty trivial thing, but it goes much deeper than that, into much more serious things than that. In fact, verse 9 here says the worst condition of all that the Holy Spirit has to come and convict people about is that they don't believe in Christ. They don't believe in me, Jesus said. That's the epitome of guilt and unbelief, to reject Christ. And what the Spirit needs to do is awaken people, shatter that shell of self-content that says, I'm okay. Everybody's mostly okay except for some really bad people. No, the Bible says you need to be convicted of the fallenness of your nature. And what Jesus had in mind is actually illustrated in a beautiful way in the book of Acts. Very soon after his death and resurrection, Acts Chapter 2 has a great illustration of the Holy Spirit convicting, convicting of sin. It's on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit had come upon the disciples. And you remember Peter got up to preach. Peter, who always seemed to say something wrong when he spoke, this time said everything right. And he preached of Christ who had been crucified in that city with which these people knew what he was talking about. They were very familiar with it as a current event. And he accused them. He said, you, you, my hearers, crucified Jesus through the hands of lawless men. Whether you put the nails in or not, it was you that were responsible for that. And what happened? You know, was it just a case of, oh, all right, people heard that and said, well, not me. I wasn't there. I didn't do it. Or that they actually were offended by him suggesting that and maybe looked for a rotten tomato to throw at Peter or something. What happened? You know what happened. Three thousand souls were cut to the quick. And it says they were cut in their heart. They cried out and said, Brothers, what should we do? We're guilty as charged. What was that but the Holy Spirit convicting of sin? Exactly what Jesus said he would do when he came upon his church. Conviction is that which strips a person bare of any excuses or defenses or saying the other guy's responsible. Oh, not me. I didn't do it. It exposes you and it leaves you in a state of utter need. And you desperately see that you aren't pleasing to God in what you're doing. Something has to happen to relieve that situation. Conviction of sin is the Spirit's first work. But then. The text says he comes right upon that with something else and convicts us with a need for righteousness. Well, it's possible to define righteousness as a mere human quality. You can say there's a variety of man-made righteousness. You think of, uh, I, I don't know why, Mother Teresa, the late Mother Teresa, always comes up with her selfless life of being committed to poverty and service to the poor and helping the dying and getting nothing for herself out of it. And we think, wow, if ever there was a human being who exhibited righteousness, there she is. Or maybe you think of a war hero, somebody who literally lays down their life in service of the country and gets their name on the the war memorial panel. And you say, wow, that was a righteous act, a noble act, self-sacrificing. Somebody who gives millions of dollars to a university or whatever – are righteous. Sure, there are things that are human that could be called righteous, and they're, they're duly admirable in their own place. But Jesus is talking about a righteousness that has to go beyond that. It has to be a righteousness that is acceptable to God. Might we call it 24 carat righteousness? It is refined and defined by God, and it is found only in Jesus Christ offering his perfect life on the cross in the place of rebellious sinners who many of whom aren't even convicted about their need of him or don't even believe in him at least at this time offering himself to be the atonement with an offended god romans 3:22 tells that we need the righteousness of god Not your good deeds righteousness, the righteousness of God, which comes only through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We're always trying to pay God off in something that isn't actually righteousness. You all know that one of the most universally popular board games of all times is the game Monopoly. I dare say I could go into probably three-quarters of your homes and find… Uh, Monopoly box stuck in a closet, maybe long neglected, but you probably have one and you've played Monopoly. And you know that you get Monopoly money, the bright colored gold and pink and blue and green money. And maybe you'd get in a situation where you were unemployed and things were short and the bank account was down and you'd think, aha, but I know the mortgages do. All I have to do is go pull out the Monopoly box. I think the $500 bills are bright gold. I don't remember what color the hundreds or maybe yellow. And, and you pull out some of those and get a fistful and go on down to the bank and say, you know what, I, I can't write you a check this month, but I've got it. Here's my payment. Plunk it down on the counter. And you know you're going to get a very strange look if not have the manager called. Who is this kook? You're offering currency that is unacceptable. It actually has no value. It may be printed to look like money, but it's not money. In fact, Paul, who had a good deal of human righteousness, of, of keeping the law and looking pretty good in outward behavior, said his whole pile of righteousness was worse than monopoly money. He said it was filthy rags. It deserved to be thrown in the trash. It was nothing of any value when it came to pleasing God. We need to be convicted by the Holy Spirit that righteousness is found only one place in the righteousness of Christ. Then there's a third point here, a sub-point in verse 11, which also says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of judgment for the ruler of this world is judged. Curious way to say it. It seems to me Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit reminds the world that Every wrong done, every injustice done, every deliberate disobedience to God is going to have a consequence and a final accounting. Jesus elsewhere said we would be accountable for every idle word that we speak. That's pretty frightening. But then he added here, not only will there be a judgment day at the final day of earth after he is returned in glory, but he says the ruler of this world, Satan, is Judged. And in fact, he will be judged almost immediately. The master liar, the prince of this world, the one who deceives and works temptation upon people, is judged, Jesus said, at his cross. We know that the cross of Jesus was the sealing of the judgment of Satan. The Bible says there's a wonderful verse I always love it in Colossians 2.15 that says Jesus did this when he died. He disarmed rulers and authorities, powers of evil they're thinking of there, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Satan had his defeat and his final judgment marked and sealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, you say, boy, he's sure active for a guy who's already judged, and that's true. The Scripture says, watch out for him. He's like a roaring lion, seeking people to devour. But he's a roaring lion with a chain around his neck, and God firmly holds the chain that holds him. The victory of Christ assures believers Nothing can be done that would permanently harm us by the enemy of our soul. You say, well, wait a minute. I hear about Christians today who are getting their heads cut off or or they're getting shot in a college classroom for being a Christian. What about that? Well, what about that? Those souls of God's people with the righteousness of Christ upon them are not deterred in any eternal way or ultimate way by physical death. Satan cannot harm the people of God in any permanent manner. So we have nothing to really fear from him ultimately. We should be aware of him, but we shouldn't be terrorized by him. It's unbelievers who should tremble because they have ahead of them a day of judgment, a final day when they look upon the face of God and have to answer for things they will not be able to answer for, and they will face God in terror, not in peace. Or in harmony with Him. The Holy Spirit convicts the world about, but let's go to the second main point here, which is a little bit shorter. The Spirit always has more of Christ to show to His church. Verses 12 and 13, I have many things to say to you, Jesus said, but you can't bear them right now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. We say that the Bible is a demonstration of what we call progressive revelation. That is, God begins with the simple and basic things that we need to find out, and then layer upon layer proceeds to make truth more explicit and more mature as we learn and understand through the ages. the same way in which a child has to learn his ABCs and then you have to read. I don't know if they still use the Dick and Jane books anymore, but I learned to read with, you know, see Dick sees, see Spot run, see Sally go, you know. And I got through that in a week or two and went on to, you know, I don't know what, Encyclopedia Britannica or something. But, uh, but you don't give a new child, you know, a course in British Romantic poets or something like that. That comes later once you learn the basics? Well, the Scripture is much the same way. God gives us this revelation, which is really a revelation of Christ from beginning to end. But in the first pages, in the first many books, the name of Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth isn't there. He's there in figures and symbols and animal sacrifices and the tabernacle and things that are hinting about him and pointing towards him. But then we come to the fullness of revelation, which the New Testament brings, that make him very plain. Well, that all has to do with what Jesus is saying here. He said the apostles could not bear many of the things that he had to tell them. Why couldn't they bear it? Weren't they smart? Were they just handicapped? What was wrong? The problem was Very important things had to happen in order for them to have the matrix, the grid of understanding on which to hang the truths that still had to be told. And the greatest of that, of course, was his cross and his resurrection. Just think for an example. I know I'm not talking to too many adults who can remember being an adult before 1941. There may be a few of you present, but not too many can actually remember prior to World War II being a mature adult and and thinking about the politics and things that were going on in the country. But some of you can. Some of you, if you can remember that, know that there was a strong cry in our country before 1941 to not get involved in World War II. People were saying, we've already fought one major war over all those European squabbles. President Roosevelt, keep us out of World War II. We don't want another war. Well, what changed that? It was actually a Sunday morning, December 7th, 1941, when all of America was totally startled. Most people had never even heard of Pearl Harbor, couldn't tell you where it was, maybe couldn't even find Hawaii on a map. But I can tell you that in 24 hours, everybody had a totally different orientation to being involved in World War II. And within 48 hours, young men were lining up at the enlistment centers and were ready to fight in a foreign war. This is what was going on here. The apostles needed the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit before they could comprehend the things that Jesus still needed to teach them. Now, I must point out, what we believe is a distinctly wrong way to interpret what the Lord said here. As some people hear Jesus say, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them. They picture, all right, the day is going to come when the Holy Spirit is going to give hundreds and thousands of prophets all through the ages in every century, right down to our century. And people are going to stand up and say, I have a word from God today. I have a new truth the church has never heard today and we have this this is practiced as you may well know in some churches today. I have a word of prophecy, I have a word of knowledge. God has given this to me and boy, are you ready to argue with somebody who who says that? You know, how do you how do you disprove somebody who makes that kind of a claim? Is that what he's preparing for? That there are going to be all kinds of Words from God sprayed through the church over the centuries through all kinds of voices. If that was true, then maybe you should have come to worship here today and said, I wonder what word of revelation and prophecy Rogers is going to give us today. But I'm very thankful that I hope none of you came here thinking that because I don't have one. I do not have and never will claim to have any new revelation from God. And for you to expect that would be 100% incorrect. There's a certain sense in which he was addressing these apostles in that day that he is not addressing all of us today. As he was saying, I have many things to say, you can't bear them now, but you'll be guided into this truth. We believe Jesus was really predicting that these apostles would be the vessels by the Holy Spirit who would record and write the New Testament as a vital part of Scripture, as, as the coronation part of Scripture in which Christ was most plainly revealed. There's a little detail here that it isn't the only argument for the point I'm making, but it's one thing that supports the point. And it interests me how translators of the Bible can miss things like this, and I'm not sure the reasons. The detail is this, and uh, Bible, well-known Bible translations like the King James doesn't, doesn't seem to get it right. The New International Version didn't get it right. The English Standard Version that we use does get it right. And it's a little thing in the midst of verse 13. The Greek text actually reads this. Maybe you won't think this is so important, but I would contend it is. The Spirit will lead you into all the truth, T-H-E, the truth. That definite article, the, is there in the Greek. But for some reason, a lot of translators just drop it, and the text says he will lead you into all truth. You say, big deal. You're really quibbling with things here. Well, if we're saying all truth, that's pretty broad and pretty vague. It might mean all truth about chemistry, botany, astronomy, engineering, political philosophy, law, any field of knowledge you want to name. But if it says into the truth and then he further specifies that that truth is about himself, which he does here, then it seems you're talking about something pretty specific. And we would contend that Jesus is pointing here the truth means truth with definite boundaries, a fixed body of truth as in the text of the Word of God. And we know that these apostles were, of course, used of God to write the books of the New Testament. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul says, By one Spirit, the Lord built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. I firmly believe that what he's pointing the apostles to here is the role that they will have. As the Spirit guides them into truth, he will inspire them and give them a revelation that will show more and more and more of Christ in the ages to come. Why were these people special? Why were they singled out differently from you and me? Because they were eyewitnesses. They had a credibility that we wouldn't have. If I decided I'm going to write the gospel according to Michael, I hope you would scorn it, just as you should scorn ridiculous, apocryphal gospels that, you know, just watch the History Channel. They'll tell you about 14 other gospels that were supposed to be accepted, all bunk. Every one of them is bunk. It does not meet the qualifications of eyewitnesses bringing forth truth as the Holy Spirit brought the events of the life of Christ into their remembrance to glorify Christ in what they wrote. That's what is being said here, to put down facts, historical facts about Christ. One of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said this, the Bible." shows me that all my comfort and all my hope is founded in facts. God did certain things in the world which actually happened. And so Lloyd-Jones says, we're not saved by mere ideas or visions or philosophy. We're saved by accomplishments by the God who acted in history. So Jesus says, the Spirit is going to glorify me as he takes what is mine and declares it to you. Do you see the beautiful symmetry of this? At least 10 or 12 times in John already, we're, we're more than about roughly midway through the, the gospel, a little more than midway through, and 10 or 12 times Jesus has said, I'm only speaking what the Father has told me to say. In, in similar words to that, he said that time after time. I only say what the Father's told me. Now what is he saying? The Holy Spirit is only going to say what I will tell him to say. Do you see the wonderful symmetry of the Trinity at work there? Jesus Christ at the center speaking the Father's words, the Spirit speaking of Christ, and only that which magnifies Christ. There are not apostles today to receive new revelation of new books for Scripture. Once upon a time, I googled my name. I used, I knew I had to make it. I have a fairly common name, so I knew I'd have to make it specific, and I put the Reverend Michael Allen Rogers Google it and I found there's a guy down in Virginia same middle name he's an ordained minister but he has one distinct difference from me he's an African American man and certainly has nothing to do with his race but he is the Apostle Reverend Michael Allen Rogers at least that's what he claims I would like to meet this brother and maybe in a friendly way discuss with him that he is not an Apostle There are no apostles in the world today. God gave his word once for all in written historic form through his apostles through whom his Holy Spirit fulfilled this promise to glorify Christ and take what is his and declare it so that the word of God ends up working like an artesian well, springing up. There it is, established in history, and you go and drink deep, And you can come back and drink deep again, and you can come back every day of your life and drink deep more and more of Christ. Another image to quickly close with here is the idea of the Spirit, as some have called him, as a floodlight aimed upon Christ. You look at that, I don't even know what they call that huge new building that they've built in New York City in place of the Twin towers. It's an amazing, huge building. And of course, it's all lit up. I haven't seen it in person yet. Some of you have, I'm sure. But here's this huge building lit at night by floodlights. And you look at it and you have to admire it It just as an architectural creation. But I doubt very much that any of you would look at that and say, oh, look at those amazing floodlights. Aren't they fantastic floodlights? You say, no, look at that beautiful building. Look at how huge it is. Look at how it stands out. It's the building that you're going to admire. That, my friends, is the analogy of the Holy Spirit to Christ. He's God's floodlight on the Son of God. And it's the glory of Christ that we see more and more, and we can take away new things, new understandings, new nuances of truth to build us up and establish us. Every time we go to him, God indeed has more and more to say to his church by his one revelation in his written word of his glorious son. And Jesus physically went home to his father. We don't have his presence. But wait a minute. Yes, we do. Because we have his spirit. And we see him in the word. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for the wonders that are being predicted here even before the cross took place. These disciples didn't know what Jesus was saying. And John even had to have his remembrance stirred up that he would write these sentences for us. But it's you shining on your son by the Holy Spirit that lets us see more and more of the wonderful glory of our Savior. May we never tire of looking at him Searching for him in the word, in the right place where we will see him. Help us to obey him and humble ourselves before him in wonder and awe. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.